So we are rolling again. So welcome back, my friend. Good to see you again. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Awesome. Yes. Um, another COVID-19 interview because we have time at home, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. Except we're not talking about COVID this time. No. At least that's not the main topic. So yeah, thanks to everyone for watching and listening. And uh, I'm really pleased to have back again for a third time, my friend, Dr. Luigi Bucuto. And it's really good to see you again. Um, so today we have a different topic. Um, I would love it if, if you don't mind introducing the topic and uh, then we'll just go with the flow. Yes. Well, first of all, uh, thank you, Carl, for having me uh, back again. It's always a pleasure. Oh, my and pleasure. Thank you to all the listeners uh, of, uh, of your um, video. Uh, so uh, today we're going to talk about uh, a neurobehavioral condition called autism in general terms, but in a more specific term, autism spectrum disorder. The nomenclature that the name is quite important because it has changed uh, through the years. Uh, autism has been described over 70 years ago uh, in 1943 for the first time. Um, and uh, during this time uh, has been uh, named in, in many ways. So um, the term autism spectrum disorder is the last definition that was proposed by the um, DSM-5, that is a, a, a guideline manual for um, mental disorders and you know, behavioral disorders uh, that uh, was released um, about uh, uh, five years ago. And um, it merges under one term, what used to be an umbrella of different conditions that used to be called autism spectrum disorders and included um, the autistic disorder that was the classical autism, uh, the uh, Asperger disease uh, that was uh, the one with the uh, high functioning people that were um, particularly skilled in one field, uh, in one cognitive field. Um, for example, we might remember the um, uh, protagonist of the movie Rain Man mm -hmm. uh, was particularly skillful in, in math. And, and then we had the PDD NOS pervasive developmental disorder, uh, not otherwise specified. Uh, and then there were other minor definitions, um, including also some syndromic conditions like uh, Fragile X syndrome or filament dermid syndrome or uh, um, red syndrome. So other conditions were characterized from the genetic point of view uh, with uh, uh, physical features on top of neurobehavioral features uh, that had a very clear genetic origin. So it was a genetic alteration that caused that, uh, that particular condition. Now, everything is considered one condition. There is one denomination, which is in fact autism spectrum disorder, ASD, and uh, most commonly known in the um, common um, terms as autism. So um, autism has uh, uh, many faces, and the fact that now we have this um, lump uh, definition, you know, that, that included, includes uh, a lot of different conditions, uh, poses some uh, challenges in the diagnosis because um, we have uh, many comorbidities, many features that might be present with uh, different degrees of severity uh, in patients with autism. So it's a, it's a complex disorder. Uh, it 
uh, has a, a complex etiology. In fact, we only know about 20% uh, of cases in terms of uh, uh, etiology. So only in 20% of cases, we are able to um, perform a, a proper genetic or molecular diagnosis. And the remaining 80% uh, is uh, considered idiopathic, which means basically of unknown origin. Unknown origin. Okay. So I, you mentioned a few things that I've, I've heard of, obviously. Um, the word autism. Um, I have uh, people I've worked with who live with autism. I actually have a, a friend who lives with Fragile X syndrome as well. Um, what I find interesting is the very distinct, uh, and, and never mind the diagnosis, if you will, for lack of better words, um, but the very distinct differences with each person. And of course, as we were talking off camera before we started rolling, people first, everyone's a person first. So I know my daughter also works with, uh, um, uh, I, sometimes I just don't know the politically correct terminology, but I know it, it's considered special education in the school district that she's in. But it, people with, let's say, developmentally delayed or learning disabilities, or so it, it would include some aut, um, it, people living with autism and um, other uh, things that are uh, they're dealing with. Um, but there are distinct differences in the level of, like we can have verbal, uh -huh. high verbal, um, maybe nonverbal too, which is, is there a way that you go about, um, let's say with the 20% that you know are living with autism is very distinctly autism. Within that, you see a wide variety of Maybe verbal to nonverbal and things like that, right? Yeah, in terms, in terms of symptoms, in terms of clinical presentation, autism is characterized by uh, three main uh, areas in which that there are some uh, different degrees of disruption. There is impairment in social interaction. There is impairment in uh, verbal and nonverbal communication, and then there are uh, repetitive and uh, stereotyped behaviors. So um, okay. when we talk about communication, um, verbal communication, but also what is called the, the body language, the nonverbal communication, um, it is impaired, but again, uh, it's impaired at different levels. We have patients that might be verbal, and that they're usually uh, considered high functioning. Uh, so again, with considering one condition encompassing all the, the, the spectrum, we might have a lot of differences in terms of uh, uh, IQ. We have a lot of differences in terms of cognitive functioning. So a distinguish between high functioning and low functioning uh, patients. And uh, so high functioning patients may present uh, quite likely with uh, a, a good speech, you know, well-developed speech, um, good uh, um, analytical mathematical skills, um, but they have uh, still some behavioral impairment. They have uh, social issues. Uh, they have uh, um, stereotyped uh, interests or uh, uh, actions or, or behaviors. So they're very focused on uh, certain topics and they tend to um, do uh, repetitive actions uh, or, uh, um, for example, repeating the uh, same words you know, over and over. So, Again, th there are different ways of presenting um, 
for, for this condition. But it is interesting, and, and I think it's the, the main focus. The name autism comes from Greek and means on its own, on your own. So uh, it's really this isolation of the individual. And uh, obviously, the communication is the bridge between individuals. So individuals with autism, like you said, people first, people with autism do have this um, issue, uh, this lack of uh, um, capacity to communicate. Uh, but uh, that is uh, most often in the outgoing direction, which means they do understand, they do get, you know, what messages are coming to them. Okay. The problem is that um, communication is based on convention. You know, language is something that is made up by certain, you know, grammatical rules, social rules, and so on. Sure. So they sometimes are incapable of following those conventions and following those rules. But uh, it is possible in many cases, especially if we consider early intervention programs, it is possible to establish an alternative bridge with these people, a bridge that uh, is uh, easier to, um, to walk for, uh, for those people. So a path that is more compatible with their condition. So if they cannot express verbally what they want, what they need, there, are, there might be other ways like figurative communication through iPad or other devices, you know, tablets, um, that allow them um, to keep the door open in the uh, outgoing way. They can still absorb, they can still receive the messages. Sure. But, uh, and this is very important because it might lead to frustration, irritability, aggressive behavior, they can't communicate on the way out. So you can imagine, you know, if a kid is thirsty, but has no way to let you know that he needs water, you know, you can imagine the frustration. And so sometimes uh, um, at the root of their um, behavioral problems, especially in interaction again with other people, there is this frustration in the communication. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Um... I um, so along with that, then let's let, let's see. I have a number of thoughts here. I guess I'll go a little bit stream of consciousness. One thing I've noticed in working with um, people who live with autism, and well, let's just say uh, a number of different conditioning, fragile X. Um, it seems that generally speaking, there's a higher level of anxiety. Um, generally speaking, yes, uh, it could be general anxiety it could be social anxiety that's that's a big one for a couple of people i know who i work with um another thing that i find interesting is and I, i'm actually wondering if um if there's anything different in, in in again for lack of better terms the wiring like let's say if if you get down right now and you give me 25 push-ups mm -hmm. i say Luigi, do you feel your pecs burning? You know, these muscles are you feeling? Yeah, I feel the burn. I feel that. I feel it. Yet, I have uh, one, let's say one individual in particular who lives with autism, who's a very dear friend of mine. Uh, we communicate very well, so outgoing is, is great with him. He, what? What burn? I don't feel any, I don't know. So what do you, you feel a burn? I don't know. And what I wonder is, what what's the difference there? Is it 
I can't imagine there's no burn going on and that he doesn't have lactic acid because he's a person. But maybe the interpretation of it is is there an interpretation issue maybe? Yes. Uh, and probably a better trainer trying to cue on how it might feel, which I still haven't figured out how to elicit yes. that. Yes. And, and uh, uh, you know, to keep it uh, using your term, which is very appropriate, the wiring, you know, we need to consider that there are um, several levels, several stages of elaboration. So you first have a, a level when, where your sensory system tells you what is going on. So the input message from the outside or even from your own body. You know, if you feel pain, if you feel fatigue, those are messages that come from your own body. And it has been shown that the, the sensory system in many patients with uh, uh, autism works in an abnormal way. So in many cases, the uh, sensorial uh, stimuli are amplified. So their uh, patients with autism are hypersensitive to um, visual stimulation, so lights to bright, yeah. to um, sounds that is you know too acute, you know uh, to high frequencies. Um, and for example, there are uh, autism-friendly uh, movie theaters where they buffer the sound, they dim the lights, you know, oh, and so they allow these patients to go through the experience of, you know, watching a movie and enjoying it without being hyperstimulated. So that is the first level, the elaboration of the um, input. Then um, there is a central level where that input is uh, analyzed. And uh, uh, so th there is the experience about pain, about fatigue, and is codified in a certain way and it's associated with the memory. And so they are associated with the concept of what is going on. And then there is a third stage that is the outgoing stage. So they need to compose sort of a reaction and from the knowledge that they acquired about that experience, that sensorial experience, they need to elaborate a response. So they, they have to describe to you, for example, what they're feeling, or they have to move away from a source of, of sound that is bothering them, you know, that sort of things. So disruption may occur at any of these levels. And uh, um, we, we know, for example, that we said before, there is, in many cases, an impairment in uh, verbal communication. So they might be aware of what is going on, but they can't elaborate, they can't find the words, or they, can't, they don't have words. You know, to, uh, to express verbally uh, what is their experience. In the case of your friend, which I assume you know from what you're saying, he is verbal. Uh, the problem is in the decodification of the message. So clearly he feels you know, the muscles burning, but uh, he doesn't associate that with the concept. He doesn't associate that with, the, with what you are talking about. So it's, uh, it's a message, it's coming, but it's not associated with the, with the idea of burning, it's not associated with the concept. And that occurs in some areas of our brain um, that uh, are the areas where information from different lobes are put together and they're associated. Like mm -hmm. you know, the concept that if you do the push-ups, you get overheated, you get tired, you get fatigued, muscles burn. The concept that you know lactic acid may be associated with burning, the concept that you know you need to drink after that. So all those things are complex uh, feelings, complex sensory stimulation, and they need to be all connected in order to elaborate the experience. So okay. we know that the wiring of uh, uh, brains in uh, people with autism 
may be different and uh, they work much better in the uh, analytical than in the synthetic uh, stage of the elaboration. So uh, they, if you give them a single task to execute, you know, very simple step-by-step, step, they're very good at that. But uh, if they need to be multitask, you know, if they need to connect one concept to another, they might find more problems. That's really interesting. Um, one, one thing I've learned, well, first of all, I've learned a lot from this gentleman. We're friends. We, uh, we even have a little Facebook page of, uh, you know, coffee and hiking with him and me, and we just talk. So we're drinking coffee and we're hiking in the woods and I have a phone going and we post it. But um, a lot of times we'll talk, a lot of it, half of it's joking around because he says I have really bad dad jokes. <laughs> and it's true, I do. But then he'll, what I've learned, I've learned so much. He's actually, he and everybody I work with, this, is, this goes straight across the board with every single person. I have learned a lot from everybody. I've really learned a lot from him in that uh, he's been able to articulate to me that, you know, I don't want to be in large crowds. I don't want to be around a lot of noise. Uh, the, I, I, I don't want to have too much information coming in because it's one step at a time. And the analytical thing, I, I understand. I've learned that. It's very interesting, very literal and analytical. Yeah. So my challenge to be better at my job working with um, a, a few people is to, and, and of course each individual is different, so they'll relate slightly differently with language and words, but find the right cueing for each person to tie it together. I was going to ask you if you have any recommendations on that. Um, knowing that each person's different. So I probably just have to feel it out and understand conceptually what's probably going on and then where they're at and what they will um, um, understand or relate with and tie together. So burning is not the thing, because he might think of fire. <laughs> yeah, but that's yeah absolutely, because he, he considers that very literally. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. But you said a very important thing. Um, Every person is different. There is a way of, uh, there is a saying in, in the uh, autism community. If you've seen one patient with autism, you've seen one patient with autism. Yes, he's told me that too, yeah. That is very true. And uh, I, everybody that works in this field uh, will confirm that. Uh, I have, um, uh, I'm, you know, I'm daring to call my friend, you know, I'd be very proud to call my friend, is a, a, a young, gentleman from my hometown, Catanzaro, who is nonverbal, but uh, through some help is able to communicate uh, via computer. He wrote a book. Unfortunately, there is no English version of that book, but uh, um, uh, it's, it's a very touching book. And uh, he is able to um, address a lot of uh, experiences, a lot of feelings that uh, he couldn't express verbally, you know, with his own voice, but uh, he provides a very interesting um, point of view. Um, and uh, he's very mature, you know, you, you wouldn't expect that he's still in, in high school, but uh, he's, um, he's a bright kid. And uh, he really gives voice um, to a lot of 
of kids or a lot of individuals that are in the same in the same condition. And uh, I think that that's a true gift. Um, again, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to you know do any commercials or. Uh, no, it's it's totally fine. You can say anything you want on on my on my show. <laughs> well, the, name, the name of this kid is, is Manuel Siriani. So uh, if uh, you guys can find him on Facebook, I'm sure. Oh, you good, can. good. Okay. But like I said, I mean, uh, they they haven't had uh, uh, the chance to translate that in English. Um, but I hope they will soon. So, but you know, to speak more in general terms, um, the the point is that these people are aware of way more things than we believe. Mm. And uh, uh, again, their uh, unique personality of each one of them, just like, you know, people without autism are different. So we just assume that uh, exactly all people, you know, are defined by one condition, but, uh, you know, all of us are, are very different. Each one of us is very different. And, you know, you don't consider hypertension people to be all the same just because they have high blood pressure right even if their personality their behavior their cognitive skills are clearly heavily influenced by the presence of autism they still have unique personal traits they still have unique personal skills mm -hmm. i think that uh, uh, again we, we go back to personalized medicine uh, we always need to consider the person first. I like in the name personalized medicine, the root person, because um, person doesn't mean only individual, doesn't mean only uh, human being. Um, if I take the liberty of citing uh, uh, one, one thing, you know, probably you, you know Patch Adams, the doctor. Yeah. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. so, uh, I, I love this quote from him. Um, if you treat a disease, you may win, you may lose. But if you treat a person, be sure that you will always win. Uh, he didn't yeah. say patient, he didn't say individual, he didn't say case, he mm -hmm. said person. Because yes. the person, um, and I don't want to go too much of topic, but you know, the person is the, the inclusive terms term that uh, uh, involves your um your mind your uh, spiritual uh, dimension your uh, you know your mood your behavior not just your your organs you know not just your your body um so it's it's very important to consider that you have in front of you um an, an individual with a personal history with a family history with emotions with different ways you mentioned anxiety you know anxiety is probably the result of having cognitive skills that are high enough to allow you to be aware of your limits in in social terms mm -hmm. so individuals that have higher functioning um, they are more aware of their limitations so that's why they develop the anxiety because they do realize that they live in the social world but they also realize that they have some objective hurdles to, to face every day when they step out in the world. And, and that, of course, you know, <laughs> could create anxiety in everybody. You know, if you oh, know sure. that, you know, you have to face a world where you're going to have to interact with other people, but you are not capable of interacting properly with other people. 
that's that's scary yeah yeah it's interesting um yeah i met him when he came here this is a few years ago to do his grad his master's degree um but then he, he graduated and he left. I was very sad. I lost a friend. I mean, you know, he wasn't close anymore. Then he ended up getting a job here at the university. So bingo, three months later, he was back. And I'm so glad. Uh, of course, now he's back home for a while until the university reopens. But we'll get together when he returns in the meantime. But there's a, there's a book that he told me about, which was really, really good. Um, maybe you're familiar with it. It's called Leaders Around Me. Oh, okay. Autobiographies of, I don't know if that word is politically correct right now, autistics. It is an older book. Yes, yes. Probably yes. before some language was modified. Yes, yes. But I'll tell you, because we hear from people who are uh, high function, uh, high verbal to nonverbal in this book, inspiring stories. Yes. Good lessons. Good okay. I think that uh, um, we we study them, you know, in, in a very brutal, not politically correct term, but uh, we have a lot to learn from them. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I always say um, that, uh, in fact, many individuals with autism uh, perform something that. Uh, we don't realize, at least not in, in full terms. They can't follow the beaten path in terms of the convention of proper communication. But sometimes they have to create a communication on their own. So think about it. We're talking about, you know, young children. How difficult it is to build a bridge that doesn't follow the guidelines for a bridge that is already there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So many of them find a way to perform certain tasks, that could be communication, could be you know, social interaction, in their own way, on their own. There's nobody that teaches them because these are not the conventional ways, but they still succeed in establishing that sort of bridge. And they do succeed also because of the efforts of parents, guardians, um, teachers, you know, and uh, people involved in, in therapeutic programs that, help on the other side I, I often say to you know to these people we need to understand we need to meet the child halfway mm -hmm. if you're just waiting on the other side of the bridge for the child to make the whole effort probably he's not going to make it yeah. but you need to be willing to meet him or meet her halfway mm -hmm. and, uh, and in many cases they, they, they succeed especially with early intervention programs so much going on in this in, in these areas now of uh, learning and um, uh, well, I, one of the things I love I and mean, he he told me this <clears throat> we have what we call uh, inclusive university which he was not in he was in regular university but uh, I, I've worked with several in still working with uh, people in inclusive universities so they go through the four-year program but they get a certificate not a degree they still what they have now is this opportunity to be on campus in a classroom and living a life that, as, as my friend says, you know, 50, what, 100 years ago, they would have locked you up in an institution and there was no chance for you. You had a label, you weren't right. They might've called you an idiot or something. Do you know on the old census forms from the 1800s? I just, 
I just saw this the other day. There used to be a, a question on there, are there any idiots living in your house? I mean, if you can even wrap your mind around that people used to label people like that. And thank, thankfully, we're, we're here now with a long ways to go, but where they get to have a, 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 an experience of going to school, going to high school, going to college. And I think it's amazing because they get the opportunity, we get to learn just like we do from anybody else. My father taught me a lot of things, how to network. My mother taught me a lot of things. She said, you can learn from anybody. It doesn't matter who it is. Yeah, it's true. So our opportunities here, like you say, we have a lot to learn and, and it's very, I like learning. I, well, that's why we're doing another interview. The more we talk about it, uh, the more I hope, you know, one, one of the goals of these, uh, of these communications, these interviews is to uh, spread knowledge and spread awareness. Because uh, you, you mentioned that um, there was a certain way of uh, identifying these individuals that has changed, but uh, in, in some communities, there is still some sort of social stigma. You know, families are not very open to, to talk about, to share their experience. They're not very open to uh, seek help from uh, physicians or from uh, family associations, which, by the way, I, I encourage very much. I'm very much involved in uh, um, one condition associated with autism that is uh, Phelan Mederman syndrome. And uh, I am very much involved with the Phelan Mederman syndrome foundation, both the Italian foundation, of which I'm very proud to say I'm part of the um, scientific committee and the uh, um, international foundation. I'm uh, uh, quite active you know, in the interaction with the members there. And I can tell you, the communications family to family are to me the, the first step right after you receive the diagnosis the first step to um face your new world your new life yeah. because for the families um you know the diagnosis of autism or a genetic condition associated with autism um it's it's always a trauma of course sure and nobody can prepare you for what this is gonna happen you know because nobody knows all that is going to happen because everybody's different. Like we said. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, sharing that with other families that have been on that path, they're just, you know, ahead of the curve or they have, they're, they live near, you know, where you live. They, they are, they are on the same boat, you know, they, so they know what you're going through. They can uh, give you some advices about, you know, uh, things that can help to sleep at night or th things that can help, you know, with the diet. Um, it's a lot. Not, not that physicians are not there or that they're not willing to help, but you can establish a completely different type of relationship. And uh, it's, it's extremely, extremely helpful because many families, once they receive the diagnosis, they're lost. And these uh, family associations, which rely also, of course, in the collaboration of many uh, scientists, researchers, and and physicians, these family associations can be, you know, the, the, the light in the darkness that can show you the way. It can help you, you know, move on, on, a, uh, on your new path and, and sure. be more confident about it. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I was thinking that um, I'm, I'm lucky. I live, well, I'm, like you, I'm in a university environment and 
I don't know about all universities, but it seems in general they seem to be a little bit more progressive, or maybe a lot more progressive. So, you know, we we're thinking along inclusion all the way. I do know that that's not the case everywhere, though, and there's a stigma in many areas, or maybe just uh, of certain families. You know, there's so many factors involved that could cause somebody to, uh, or well, for the stigma to exist. But um, as far as, you know, this whole idea of learning and uh, growing, I can't tell you how much I've grown from working with the inclusive view. I love it. And the people there, I have the best time. I have the best time. Um, I have a question. So let's talk just for a minute. You mentioned in the beginning uh, Asperger's. Yes. Asperger's, is that still an actual diagnosis? I, I've no, heard conflicting reports. I've heard it's not anymore. Yeah. Okay. But so it falls within the um, ASD? Yes, that's correct. Um, spectrum disorder. Okay. A fragile X, is that the, still within that? Fragile X is a, a separate diagnosis because it does have a, um, a genetic, uh, well defined okay. abnormality. And, and uh, a certain portion of individuals with X present with uh, uh, autism spectrum disorder. Oh, okay, okay. Then, you know, that you makes ASD as a, a standalone condition. Um, fragile X is not part of that. Fragile X is one of those conditions associated with what we call syndromic autism. So it's distinctly different because of a genetic yeah. uh, a gene. So, because it's not just autism. So if we consider autism just uh, like the, the narrow behavioral disorder that affects social interaction, communication, repetitive stereotype behaviors, it's one diagnosis. Of course, there are a series of comorbidities that may be present in patients with autism, let's say seizures, sleep disorders, and, and other conditions. Okay. But if we consider a syndromic presentation which involves many times dysmorphic traits which involves um, issues in uh, other organs uh, then we have a, a different presentation that we consider syndromic autism okay. syndromic autism is part of that 20 percent of cases of which we can provide a diagnosis but you know if we consider it's it's you know very uh, very few cases, you know, it's, it's rare if we consider the whole uh, autism. Like the, the most recent um, epidemiological uh, projections are talking about one case out of 59 uh, children in school age in the United States for, for ASD. Um, right, okay. So it's, it's a different level in terms of uh, population numbers. You know, the, the, those syndromes are in the order of one out of 10,000, one out of 15,000, and so on. Okay. Okay. That I understand. Thank you. I, to get have clarification on that just helps me. Um, and again, you know, the whole reason helping me is, you know, when I started doing these interviews years ago, it was somewhat self-indulgent because I didn't know how else I was going to get to talk with any doctors or experts. And I knew if I asked somebody out to coffee, well, you know, they're not going to do that probably. But the interviews have worked out to be um, a wonderful tool so I can learn because I, that's what it's all about, but also can share. And that's, like you said, sharing 
I've always believed education should not be hoarded, it should be shared. Let's get this out there. We had over 100 hits in one day on the COVID interview, and I've never had 100 hits in one day on any interview. So <laughs> we were at 112 an hour ago. So okay. of course that's a big topic. Of, uh, no, so uh, that, that I, I know that probably not all these people will, will hear that, but uh, I have to confess a mistake. I, I did watch the interview. Um, I said um, that uh, that a lot of people in the healthcare are, um, you know, fighting this battle on the front line. And I said that most of them are paying with their life. Unfortunately, I mean, it's not true. Many of them are paying, you know, with their lives. Still, too many. So yeah. sorry for this, you know, off-topic, you know, uh, comment, but. Uh, uh, I, I just realized I made that, that mistake in the in the heat of the moment, so I apologize for that. Oh, that's okay. Well, you know, though, in a way, though, see, everything's connected to everything else somehow, it seems. For example, I know that uh, um, a few of my friends who live with autism uh, are very, very, very anxious, almost like a paranoia about the COVID situation. They're not sure what to touch, where to go, what to do, and and th that anxiety has been through the roof. Yeah. And not actually, that, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Well, just for each of them, is it's calmed down some, but it's still higher than most people. Yes. Actually, it's uh, it's uh, very interesting that you brought it up because. We have to consider that uh, uh, families that deal with children or with individuals with autism, but in general with individuals with special needs, are more at risk of having their, their life disrupted by these uh, conditions like the, the current pandemic. Yeah. First of all, many of these individuals are not um, independent. They can't live on their own. So if someone gets infected, gets sick, you know, especially if we think about parents that are a little bit in the older age range, who's gonna take care of these children or these you know, individuals while their parents are in the hospital. Second, um, these patients are already often under certain treatment. Even if there is no cure for autism, there are some treatments for comorbidities like seizures, like irritability, um, and, and these patients, in many cases, are more prone to develop um, infections or uh, inflammation, let's say, at the intestinal level and, and so on. So in the, in the wide range of uh, comorbidities, there are things that uh, uh, require medical attention. So um, they, they might be considered more at risk in one of the categories at higher risk. Uh, because they're already undergoing certain uh, treatment protocols. And uh, there have been um, some, uh, some work, some proposals mentioning uh, uh, drugs that may um, increase the risk of respiratory complications once you have uh, the infection of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. So, of course, we always need to be very cautious, uh, but I can see the concern of many families that have their children treated with those drugs, like uh, um, it's you know common knowledge now. Uh, they've mentioned that uh, ibuprofen might increase the uh, risk of complications. Right. Um, sorry. Yeah. Right. I heard about that. Yes. Yeah. So they they suggest to uh, shift to uh, paracetamol 
you know, in, in, in some conditions. But we have to consider there might be individuals that are allergic to paracetamol. There might be individuals that are taking ibuprofen for, uh, you know, the treatment of conditions that may not be treated by paracetamol. You know, every drug has its own range of activity, side effects, and so on. Sure. Very important, once again, we go back to personalized medicine. It's very important to consider the full background of the individual. Uh, and so the therapy that that, that, that individual is, is taking, you know, all the, the background, the, the allergies, the interactions with other drugs. And uh, I understand that uh, many families that are touched by autism are going through a, a double challenge, the challenge of trying to stay healthy, to not get infected, not getting their, their children infected, but at the same time, maintaining the, the medical treatment and trying to adjust you know, uh, with what the, the literature is, is suggesting day by day. This is, a, this is still a learning process, like we were saying yesterday. We are learning because we, we knew very little about this virus and, and we're learning, so we're adjusting. But these people are already under treatment for something else. So in their case, it's more urgent to, to learn and to make the right decisions. Yeah, you know, this today especially seems to have uh, uh, tied in this personal, personalized medicine for me a bit more, because there's more to it. Like you say, this whole bedround of everything, it's, there's so much to consider, right? And it's all, it's all the root is the person, that's, that's where it starts. Um, I have a couple of questions. Are ADD, ADHD, OCD, and autism anywhere related? Um, is there any correlation between any of those? There are some uh, important areas of overlap. Um, so attention deficit disorder, ADD, with or without hyperactivity, so ADHD or ADD. Um, and OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, they do affect uh, behavior. They do uh, generate some abnormal patterns of behavior, and uh, um, they uh, present uh, quite few similarities with uh, the overall cognitive and behavioral presentation in, in autism. So uh, it's not uncommon to have uh, patients with autism and ADHD, especially um, patients that. Uh, have a cognitive level that allows them to uh, go to school, mm -hmm. um, and then uh, if you consider the uh, the anxiety, uh, now that might play a role, uh, also associated with that, and uh, add some layers of complexity and the profile of that individual from the neurocognitive and neurobehavioral standpoint. So um, th there is a way of seeing these like uh, they are. Um, many faces of the same condition. Some disruption in the wiring that uh, regulates our mood and behavior may present in different ways. And in fact, in many families uh, with uh, individuals with uh, ASD, uh, there is a, a history of individuals that received the diagnosis of other mental disorders. It's not uncommon to have in the same family members with ASD, members with ADHD, members with OCD. Um, so there might be this genetic background that predisposes to an abnormal wiring of some of the neuronal circuits. And uh, according to what type of other genetic components or metabolic components or environmental components will be added to the equation, 
the outcome may be slightly different. So it may still be in the uh, field of mental disorders, neurobehavioral disorders, but in one member of the family, uh, there might be ASD, in another member, ADHD, in another member, both. Um, okay. Depression or other, other things. The interesting thing about this um, is, and again, looping back to the personalized medicine and my, my TED talk, these genetic components taken individually might not give you the answer. Because if you analyze a family tree and you have a patient with, um, or a person with ASD, a person with OCD, a person with depression, what are you looking for? You're looking for a gene for ASD, gene for OCD, gene for depression. If you find the same alteration in um, all these people, how can you connect the genotype with the phenotype? There is this level of variability. So most likely it's not one genetic change, it's not one variant that determines it all, but there is this genetic background of multiple variants that may affect multiple, multiple neuronal circuits at different levels. If you take each one of these variants individually, you will not find the answer to your diagnostic question. But if you consider the interaction at multiple level of these variants, which might be all present in one individual, all but one present in another individual, and so on, you can see much better the complexity of the phenotype that can be generated by these interactions. Okay, okay. Well, you just answered the next question I was going to ask. Thank you. <laughs> Which brings me to the next question. Um, so in, let's say, in ASD, with the abnormal wiring, is there any kind of uh, something going on that's different between the two hemispheres of the brain as far as uh, crossing the midline or connecting? Well, the um, corpus callosum, which is the central area that connects the two hemispheres, is often abnormal in patients with autism. But again, this is a very important point. There is no neuroanatomical um, uh, report or no neuroanatomical abnormality that has been uh, detected in all patients with autism. Once again, they're okay. All so there are certain areas that are more often uh, found uh, with abnormalities. So more, they present with uh, something uh, unusual uh, more often than other areas of the brain. The corpus callosum is one. Um, the hippocampus is another one, which regulates you know, instincts and mood. Um, the uh, the uh, cerebellum is another one. Um, so the, the, the frontal lobes which are associated with uh, association. So it's an area that usually connects information from other areas of the brain. So there have been um, studies highlighting uh, um, higher frequency of uh, abnormalities in certain areas of the brain rather than other areas. But it, there is no neuroanatomical lesion that is associated with uh, autism. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I, I wondered. Wondered about that because I've heard you know conflicting oh. reports and none of them from experts. Sorry, I, I, I would like to rephrase that. There are several neuroanatomical uh, abnormalities that have been associated with autism, but there is no neuroanatomical lesion that is uh, pattern mnemonic that is diagnostic of autism. It's okay. like oh, we found this. That means that this is a brain of a patient with autism. 
or this is a patient with autism, if we do an MRI, we must find this abnormality. Okay. One okay, thing yes. is, one thing is causation. We always need to distinguish you know, the, the two things. Absolutely. Yeah, that really, I learned a lot from this today. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Um, do you have, uh, what, what type of research is going on here in the future, plans for research around this area? Um, any specific things you're wanting to learn about or? Um, well, I think that uh, um, due to the variability of autism, um, we are now moving towards uh, uh, a, a wider approach. So uh, we're looking at, at uh, uh, a genomic approach, not like a single gene approach anymore. Thanks to the new technologies, you know, next generation sequencing, third generation sequencing, we now have the capability of looking at the whole genome. And so uh, through um, bioinformatic um, models for analyzing this vast amount of data, we can uh, have a better idea of the complex interactions that may occur uh, among different genes, different pathways, and, and so on. So um, from the genetic and molecular standpoint, I think this is really the new frontier. But uh, also from the uh, clinical standpoint, I think that there is more attention dedicated to um, the stratification of this population with autism, the correlation with comorbidities, the uh, uh, importance of biomarkers that may be um, helpful to identifying uh, new targets for investigation, but also uh, might give us some information about the prognosis, so the, the course of the, the disorder in, in life. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so interesting what you can do now, isn't that with technology? Yeah. It's so fascinating. Uh, so I did think of another question. Um, only two more. It, and so you mentioned in the beginning, and we brought it up again, as Asperger's used to be a, a label, if you will, or a diagnosis, right? Are there any other that are no longer, like Asperger's is no longer a diagnosis because it, it's part of ASD. Are there any other that people may uh, relate to if they watch or listen to this like that, you know, that are pulled out of that now and they're really not a separate diagnosis. Yeah, the, the three that main diagnoses that were part of the autism spectrum disorders, plural, were autistic disorder, which was also called the classical autism, okay. um, Asperger disease, and uh, PDDNOS, which stands for pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. So a lot of people um, used to receive a lot of people with autism used to receive one of these three diagnoses. I see. And with DSM-5, they're just receiving a diagnosis of ASD. Okay, thank you. That, that helps to clarify for me. Yeah. Um, and I think really the only other thing I wanted to ask, because you've covered everything plus a lot, which is beautiful. I I talk a lot, I know. <laughs> no, I, you know what, I'm, you talk as long as you want. I have till Friday morning, it's 38 hours away. <laughs> no, so the, um, if you have any kind of a general takeaway message, I have started asking this question because I think that uh, if somebody was to sum it all up, or if you were to sum it all up, if there's just a general takeaway you have, 
for for our audience? So, first of all, always consider that you have in front of you a person. Don't underestimate the cognitive capacities of this person, the cognitive skills. Just because this person might be nonverbal or might not have eye contact with you, doesn't mean that this person is not listening or is not understanding, at least in part, what, what you're saying. Um, try to meet this person halfway. Try to understand uh, what are this person's skills. Rather than focusing on what is lacking, try to focus on what this person can give you. And because we always reason in terms of uh, scales, indexes, scores, so uh, we, um, which of course, you know, is the quantitative way to define, you know, certain features, certain skills. But uh, um, these individuals may be out of the scale, maybe off the charts, and work in a different way. So try to be um, compassionate, try to understand that you're dealing with a different structure, different convention in terms of male behavior. And uh, um, try to learn from those other, that other person, just like the other person has tried to learn from you. Uh, I think in the end, uh, um, these individuals have a lot to give and uh, uh, if we are um, capable of uh, um, taming down their uh, frustration, their irritability, uh, you will see that these are, you know, uh, very much loving and caring children and, uh, uh, and individuals, you know, and uh, the spending time with them is really um, an experience that I would um, really recommend you know to everybody has a chance their families have a lot to give you know in terms of experiences very true and, yeah and and really the example that they set in terms of uh, uh, strength in terms of uh, um, positive will and uh, motivation and dedication uh, it's a marvel uh, that's it's great advice I think that um, I, I just I can't think of anything else to say in regards to that because that just encompasses all of it. And you know, there is there is that factor. Right? There's a a trainer who uh, is one of my mentors. His name is Ali Ali Preeman. He's up at the university where I work. Uh, amazing gentleman. Really great uh, movement specialist. And he talks about. Um, when we talk about the individual, we always talk about people first. And uh, somehow I just lost my train of thought. I'll, it'll come back. But while I'm thinking of the other thing, I will mention this. Oh, no, I know what it is. Yeah, it has to do with this. It has to do with talking with the families. You know, sometimes um, it's necessary, even if a person living with autism or, or whatever is verbal, uh, you may learn f more from the family. You'll probably learn more from the family a lot of times to help you. So I, speaking to the trainer, the physical therapy, the movement specialist population in particular with what I'm saying right now, because if we just talk to the individual, we might, we're going to learn some things, but talking with the family, maybe it's the parents, um, you'll probably learn a lot more. 
Yes. Of course, if we go into another area, if I talk with a, a person living with Parkinson's, I always learn more from the spouse or caregiver. Yeah. <laughs> yes. like, tell me, tell me this, and then you'll get the whole thing. You'll get the truth. It's a little different, but it's the same. Conceptually, it's the same thing. Um, and I've learned a lot from all the parents I work with, actually all all the parents. In fact, there's just one other thing I wanted to say a while ago, and I'll just, um, you can add, add on to this anything you want to. I learned something very profound about three years ago. Um, I was working with a gentleman who at the time, uh, I was traveling a lot, so I wasn't working at the university because I had worked there and then I didn't. And then four and a half years later, I started again. But anyways, I would do, uh, when I was home, I would do home visits. So I would go to people's houses, you know, because everyone, all my clients live close. Nothing's far away from anything up here. I'd go to his house. We might go outside and do some climbing or stairs or work out inside or whatever. But part of... Um, um, well, one of this gentleman's challenges has to do with hygiene and taking a shower, uh, getting clean after a workout, let's say, you know, just freshening up, changing his clothes. Now, I'm not going in the shower with him, but I mean, the, the idea is that the shower is on one side of the apartment and the couch is on the opposite side, 40 feet away, whatever. So all I had to do is say, okay, just it's time, go. And he wanted me to, because if I didn't, he said, if you leave and I don't take a shower, I probably won't take one. But if you're here and you tell me to, I will. So I wait. Well, he comes out one day, you know, he's changed his clothes and his hair didn't look wet. He didn't look like he'd taken a shower. And, you know, maybe he didn't take a good shower. But I wondered if maybe he would do something like I did when I was a kid, because I hated showers when I was a kid. Just turn on the water and then let it run. <laughs> so I asked him, did you really take a shower? Are you sure? Well, yeah, of course I did. Didn't you hear the water? Yeah, but you know, okay, that's fine. So I called and I talked with his mother that night because we had some things we want to talk about. I just wanted to inquire. So I told her the story and she says, if he said he took a shower, he took a shower and here's why. There's absolutely no logic in his mind on why anybody would lie to anybody about anything. Lying has no place. There's no logic in any way, shape, or form. That was so profound for me. And I found that tends to be, I, as far as I can tell, that's the truth. I, I, any experience with that when it comes to that type of thing or um, you know, how the brain is working, how the mind is working as far as being deceitful or not being deceitful, let's say? Well, um, I don't recall any specific experience with lying or no lying. Um, I, I might think that, you know, some of them may be a little bit uh, uh, kind of like uh, trickier or uh, they do elaborate their ways to, to get around some house rules or things like that because they are they are like that some some patients with you know higher function um i do think that, that in many cases they do live in a simpler world because they have their interaction mostly limited to uh the the house or their therapist so it's it's a world that uh, is way more comfortable because it works within 
predetermined schemes. So I can see that uh, lying uh, would not bring them uh, any sort of advantage because they just know that you know going to A to B, they have to perform a certain task. So you know they, they don't need to lie. They don't. It's it's not part of something that would come with benefit in in their mind. It seems like it, the not lying just falls into that very literal and analytical thought process, maybe. I'm not yeah, sure. but, but in general, I, I would say once again, everybody's different. So yeah, that's, okay. <laughs> yeah, might be, you know, yeah. <laughs> don't trust too much your kid with autism that is not going to lie again, he's not going to ever lie to you. Okay, because well, that's you might, good to you know too, though. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's good to know too. So with but this particular, in fact, actually lying is a more elaborate cognitive task because you need to, uh, you know, uh, be aware of what is the the, the true uh, unfolding of the events, and you need to make up an alternative version that uh, might be consistent or inconsistent. But you do need to, you know, elaborate at a higher level. Mm -hmm. It's not just, uh, you know, that. You're eating chocolate, and you know someone say, "Are you eating the piece of chocolate?" And you say, "No, no." <laughs> yeah, you need to make up a story, so it has to be consistent in space and time, you know, with the context, with the events, and uh, you know, cover what has been done or not has been done. So, in one way, it's it's an achievement, you know, <laughs> not something to be particularly proud of, but. In, in cognitive terms, it's uh, something still remarkable. So interesting. So then that brings us back now. It brings us back to the individual, to the person. So I can probably count on this person I'm referring to uh, is that he's not going to lie to me. It's just his nature. Mm -hmm. But I also learned now from you that that may not always be the case. So this is interesting. <laughs> it's great. Yo, man, this is this has been fantastic. I've learned a lot. Thank you very much, Luigi. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for this opportunity. And if you don't mind, just hang on with me for a minute after I sign yes. off from the the recording. But uh, yes. folks, again, here we are. We're learning more. The whole idea I started, like I mentioned earlier, this whole interview series was to get in front of people so I could learn because I, I I've always wanted to learn. And I still want to all the time. So. This is what I do. We get together with experts. We're very fortunate to have some friends um, who are experts like Dr. Luigi here. And um, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something from it. And please feel free to share this as well. Uh, for those who are listening, um, there is the YouTube version if you want to watch it. Um, it's on my website, neuromotortraining.com. It'll click over to this playlist and then uh, feel free to share because we really do want to reach as many as possible because the more all of us know, the better we can do at helping people, all people everywhere. So especially now, it's a good thing to be doing. A lot of people are lonely, they're isolated, they're stressed out, they have high anxiety. So what a great time to reach out, maybe share some education and just check up and see how they're doing. Thank you again, Luigi. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Have a fantastic day.